Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Yi Zhuang. Yi is a senior staff engineer at Twitter and tech lead for the machine learning core environment on the Cortex team. Yi, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Uh, It's great to chat with you, and I'm really looking forward to digging into what you are working on on the platform side of things. Um, Before we do that, I'd love to start out with a little bit of your background and how you started working in machine learning platforms and infrastructure. Sure. Actually, I would say um, there are two parts to this question. There's uh, how I, I guess, how I started working on machine learning and also how I started working on platform and infra. So I can dive into both. Does that sound good? Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So um, I think ever since uh, I was uh, a kid, I always had an affinity to both math and computer science. So that's why I got attracted to discipline like machine learning, where I get to practice both. Um, So I would say the first time I touched machine learning was actually uh, in college. I was on my college's robotics team, and we programmed these uh, robot dogs to play soccer. Those are Sony eyeballs, uh, and the uh, competition was called RoboCup. And we participate in this competition and program uh, robot dogs to play soccer against each other. Um, unlike what you would have guessed today, um, machine learning actually wasn't used in wasn't used very much in our vision system. It was actually used for a different case. We used machine learning to tune the gates of the robots. By gait, I mean the walking posture. There is a set of parameters that needs to be optimized, and the search space is pretty large. So what we did was we essentially made the robot dogs walk back and forth on the playing field and recorded the running speed. And then we tune each parameter by a little bit and then make them walk the playing field again. Then we can compute the gradient of the walking speed with respect to that parameter we notched by a little bit. And we do that to all the parameters, and then we perform one round of gradient descent. Um, That allowed us to optimize um, the running speed of our robot dogs. It's a very tedious process, actually. That sounds super tedious. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember these Sony Ibo dogs from many years ago. Um, I don't. Rem- I didn't realize they were quite that programmable. Um, they 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 were programmable, uh, but yeah, it the experience experience was uh, pretty. It was not as good as today. Like uh, essentially, for example, if we get a segmentation fault, the whole ro- robot turns off. Um, basically, the operating system shuts down. But one thing that that was uh, pretty amazing was um, our college's robotics team. We started as um, the last place uh, in the U.S. Open competition in around 2015. Okay. the same team actually won like world championship in 2007, 2007. Wow. We actually beat very reputable teams like Carnegie Mellon eight to one in terms of score. So I would say like uh, it was the definitely hard working team and the techniques we were using, like using machine learning to tune the uh, 
uh, gate of the robots, it, they worked out well. Wow. And where did you go to school? Um, I actually went to Carnegie Mellon right after. I think for basically beating their robotics team definitely helped me get that offer from both <laughs> Carnegie Mellon's Robotics Institute and Computer Science Department. So what I ended up choosing, though, was uh, I was both a math major and a CS major in college. I ended up choosing a very mathematical field of computer science at Carnegie Mellon, where I uh, model system performance by building mathematical models, um, essentially building uh, Markov models and analyze queuing, et cetera, to basically predict the performance of computer systems. That's what I do in grad school. Oh. And I got into platform around, uh, I, like I would say system engineering around uh, roughly two years into my PhD program at Carnegie Mellon. I interned at Google. So I worked on the basically performance modeling for the next generation storage system at Google. And I offered to, for example, build math models to predict performance there. And they were less excited. They were uh, more, <laughs> yeah, they, they were like, uh, we don't want you to build math models. We want you to actually um, measure and tune the parameters. So this is, again, very similar to the robotics case, right? It's essentially, a, we have like a black box storage system, but we have many knobs we can tune. Essentially, we're looking for the uh, best set of parameters that can actually uh, perform um, best. So that was my Google internship. And afterwards, uh, I started realizing that my PhD program, I do a lot of math, but I don't do a lot of hands-on engineering. And I actually found myself um, to like building stuff. And that's when I dropped out of my PhD program and came to Twitter uh, my first uh, projects uh, were actually on Twitter search, and uh, this is where I learned to be an actual engineer and uh, learned about system and platform engineering. And uh, I tech like around 2014 or so, I led a group of people and built this uh, trillion document scale search engine at Twitter. Um, this allowed Twitter to index every single tweet ever published. Um, now you can search for Jack's first tweet uh, setting up my Twitter, um, and that tweet would show up. Oh, wow. That's briefly how I got into platform engineering. And afterwards, um, I came to Cortex building machine learning platform for Twitter. Uh, and so Cortex, it was, is Cortex a team that grew organically in Twitter or there was an acquisition uh, that was part of that as well, right? Yes. Actually, there were multiple acquisitions. Uh, there was a tweet from Jack around, uh, Jack was our C is our CEO. Um, he tweeted about this around 2016 and uh, Twitter acquired three companies one of them is called Madbits, one of them is called Magic Pony, and one of them is called Wetlab. These three companies, the acquisition formed the original Cortex org. And uh, the original focus was deep learning research. Uh, essentially, we inherited the DNA from these three acquisitions. Got it. Got it. And so... To what degree was machine learning really heavily used at uh, at Twitter? Or maybe the, the right way to ask this is broadly used. Uh, it sounds like you 
there were some activity around search, and I imagine there were some other kind of point use mm-hmm. cases, but was it in broad use uh, at Twitter before Cortex? So machine learning before Cortex was used, but it wasn't practiced in a consistent way. It was definitely used uh, for us to um, do advertisements, um, for example, CTR prediction to mm-hmm. fight spam and uh, uh adversarial users, um, bad accounts on our platform, and also used to rank search. Um, Cortex, uh, essentially, in the past two years or so, transitioned from a deep learning research org to a machine learning platform org. And Cortex um, is basically bringing consistency to how machine learning is used across all sorts of uh, product teams at Twitter. So I wouldn't say machine learning wasn't used at Twitter widely before Cortex. Machine learning was widely used, but exactly because it was widely used and uh, it was practiced there, like there are practitioners across many different teams. Mm-hmm. It was a very fragmented landscape, and different teams did things differently. So Cortex around 2017, our CTO Parag took over the org and uh, started focusing the org around. Uh, serving customers and being a platform team. And later, uh, our current director, Sandeep, took over and uh, continued to sharpen our customer focus. Now we are a platform team building machine learning platforms to serve various product teams. And as we currently stand, most Twitter product teams are using Cortex machine learning platforms to practice ML at Twitter now. Is the goal of Cortex and building platforms, would you say it's to drive uh, more consistency and efficiencies in the way folks use machine learning? Or is it to broaden the uh, the kind of the, the base of people that can use machine learning? Not that those are strictly a dichotomy, but I'm wondering if one or the other really drove the establishment of the organization. Um, I think it's both. Actually, ultimately, our goal is to empower um, practitioners at Twitter to use ML both more efficiently and empower more people to be able to leverage machine learning. So it's I would say the emphasis is more on the latter. Um, bringing consistency itself is a intermediate goal in my mind. We're hoping to bring efficiency to the company um, by bringing consistency. And once everybody is practicing ML in a consistent way using our offerings, it uh, makes our job easier to bring productivity to them. I, I don't know if this answer makes sense. I can further elabor- elaborate. No, it, it absolutely does. And I, I've got one more question on kind of these meta organizational questions before we dig into some more detail about the the platform there. And, it, and that is around this transition from a deep learning research focused organization to a platform organization. It strikes me that those are very different missions, perhaps calling for very different skill sets. What was the experience of going through that transition like? Uh, yeah, it, it was definitely um, a difficult transition, I would say. And the um, most um, 
the biggest shift is the mindset from doing cutting-edge research to serving internal customers. And the customer-focused mindset is the biggest change in the org. And it took us um, many uh, took us a lot of effort to get our, uh, for example, uh, engineers and researchers to be aligned on that. Um, part of it comes from... Did, did most people buy into the idea of doing that shift or did the org turn over quite a bit in order to get there? Um, both, both. Um, we had some ten- turnovers as the transition, but most people actually um, stayed and bought into this uh, new uh, vision or focus. And uh, we are now very customer-oriented, and we do what our customer asks for. And uh, we still have a research org, but even that research org is focused on, for example, improving the production model performance of our customer teams. So for people who want to do like machine learning, deep learning research, we still have a place, but we definitely repurposed uh, the the goal of the research. Yeah, the the idea of kind of the a customer uh a customer centric view in providing platforms, I think is one that uh makes a lot of sense is kind of, it's it's uh a very kind of straightforward approach. And I'm thinking specifically about this conversation that I recently had and was published on the podcast just a couple of shows ago with Eric Coulson at Stitch Fix. And when he talked about the role of uh, the platforms team in uh, his group, it was the way that they figured out the features that the platform needed. It was it was really focused on things that their customers weren't asking for. It's like, how could they add value that the user Mm. doesn't even know about Um, versus the way I think of traditional kind of product management, your understanding requirements and kind of organizing those requirements and figuring out how to get there with a a platform. Does uh, either one of those uh, approaches resonate with the, the way things tend to happen at Cortex? Um, I think actually both. So we can talk about our strategy for last year and this year. Last year is about adoption and consistency. We need to get our users to use our platform. And this year we started to look into, for example, uh, ease of use and iteration speed. This is when we think about what kind of features make our users' lives easier. So I would say for 2018, getting customers to adopt our product and essentially switching from their current machine learning tool toolkits to our platform, um, a customer-focused mindset, customer-driven feature development is more valuable. We really need to listen to our customers to understand what makes them to change from their current ML tool toolkits and uh, ML, um, for example, um, frameworks that switch to our offering. And afterwards, when we think about what features makes their life easier, we need to adopt uh, strategic thinking and think about what our customers are not asking for. Um, does this answer make sense? So I think it's a gradual shift in the beginning of creating this platform we definitely need to put more focus on uh, 
serving customers and uh, catering to their asks. And as the platform matures, we'll gradually increase the uh, strategic bets in our portfolio and uh, do more work that's not necessarily being asked by customers, but we're anticipating. Uh, so we've talked very abstractly about the platform. Maybe walk us through the platform now. What are the major components? How do you think about it uh, architecturally? Uh, or how would you describe it to someone? Sure. So Cortex right now, uh, we offer multiple solutions in our ML platform. We offer the core model training and evaluation part, which is based on TensorFlow. And we offer... Um, data pre-processing uh, and featureization, something we call Feature Store. It allows users to consistently prepare um, features for machine learning models, both at training time and uh, prediction time, which is uh, offline in offline and online context. And uh, we offer production model serving based on JVMs, um, this is like a TensorFlow serving equivalent, except it's uh, specialized and custom built for Twitter. And we have pipeline orchestration, which is a automated, which is an automation solution that allows people to run dependency graphs of machine learning workloads and uh, basically chain a dependency of tasks into a single graph and run them in an automated manner. And we have also added more uh, efforts in our platform, including embeddings, uh, nearest neighbor search for candidate generation. We have added uh, machine learning observability, which allows to us to observe feature distributions and also analyze models. And uh, in the end, we also started a new team inside Cortex, which is called Meta, which is uh, studying the uh, bias and accountability, fairness, um, those concerns inside um, algorithmic decisions. That's a high-level overview of what Cortex comprises of today. Oh, lots of interesting stuff to dive into. So the, the first of the things that you mentioned was at the framework level? Uh, yes, the first one is uh, what I mentioned is called the DeepBird. It's our model training and evaluation solution. Uh, so maybe let's let's start there. What is the goal of uh, DeepBird and how do users use it? Yes, so DeepBird started as uh, so historically, uh, Twitter Cortex uses uh, Torch, which uh, Lua Torch, not PyTorch. It's the uh, initial, uh, I would say it's uh, one of the older established deep learning frameworks. What we noticed around 2017 was that the Torch community started to lose steam and the TensorFlow and PyTorch started gaining popularity in the community. And uh, DeepBird, um, actually DeepBird version 2, is our uh, effort in partnership with Google to bring TensorFlow to Twitter. So the goal of this, um, this component, DeepBird V2, is to unlock uh, latest technology backed by Google, mostly TensorFlow and its ecosystem, and TensorFlow Extended for use at Twitter. And uh, specifically, to be, to be more specific, um, 
Twitter is more of a Java shop. Like most of our code are either in Java or Scala, basically JVM languages, whereas TensorFlow is mostly Python and C++. So we had to build um, quite a lot of production gluing logic to actually make TensorFlow work at Twitter. And also DeepBird provides an additional abstraction layer um, between TensorFlow and our machine learning practitioners at Twitter. Um, we do this for multiple uh, goals. One is to reduce the complexity of using TensorFlow because TensorFlow was actually uh, released, production release was in February 2018. It's a relatively new thing and we would like to hide complexity whenever possible. And inside the abstraction layer, we prescribe uh, default values for different knobs and we also include optimizations that are specialized and uh, customized for the Twitter uh, data centers and Twitter workload. A, a ton in there to dig into. You, you mentioned needing to build uh, a lot of glue code to bring this Python-oriented system into your primarily JVM-based environment. Mm -hmm. Can you give some examples of specific things that you had to do? Yeah, the... The uh, main example I can give is that TensorFlow is serving, right? So TensorFlow serving is actually a C++ app speaking gRPC. At Twitter, um, we, gRPC is not our standard uh, RPC protocol. And also C++ is not the main language. Our engineers don't know how to maintain uh, C++ apps. So we essentially built an equivalent of TensorFlow serving but inside uh, using Java and Scala, and we ship that app to our customers. This is mainly for internal maintenance so that our teams knows how to be on call and fix issues for, their, for the serving solution. And also it's for tighter integration with our internal observability stack. This allows us to um, integrate with our uh, monitoring and alerting solutions seamlessly because TensorFlow serving doesn't have that um, integration. Um, does that make sense? Uh, yes. So DeepBird, DeepBird V2 is very focused on bringing TensorFlow to Twitter. Does that mean it's a, a highly opinionated system and a user that is interested in using PyTorch, for example, uh, isn't supported with DeepBird? Um, that's currently the case. So uh, remember, like uh, what we started with, um, the goal was we were trying to defragment the machine learning practices at Twitter. Mm -hmm. What we noticed was in 2000, around 17, we had users of Lua Torch, and we had TensorFlow users, we had Scikit-Learn users, we we had XGBoost users. Um, so this fragmentation caused several issues. Um, first of all, it causes um, difficulty sharing. Different teams can't share their machine learning models, um, their tooling and resources. And uh, sometimes it prevents expertise sharing as well. Like if an engineer wants to move from one team to another, he has to learn a new set of expertise in order to be effective. 
So that's when we noticed the fragmentation is a problem. And then we also noticed work duplication, right? So Twitter is a very large scale um, company. And I can introduce our scale um, maybe separately, but essentially we have to invest in a lot of resource to build duplicate serving solutions, for example. Let's say to serve a scikit-learn model versus serving a PyTorch model versus serving a TensorFlow model. If we end up building like three different sets of serving solutions, which is what happened before, it wastes a lot of engineering resource. So that's why DeepBird is an opinionated, like you said, um, a prescribed opinionated way of doing machine learning based on top of TensorFlow that uh, tries to get our machine learning practitioners to do things in a consistent way that allows different teams to share machine learning models, share their tools and uh, resources, and even knowledge across teams. You mentioned scikit-learn. Is DeepBird also an abstraction for traditional machine learning workloads in, in beyond the uh, deep learning workloads? So there's really not a clear line between deep learning and traditional machine learning. So yes, DeepBird can support traditional machine learning. Um, TensorFlow supports, for example, um, traditional machine learning um, uh, methods as well. Uh, one of the widest used uh, traditional machine learning method is actually logistic regression. It's uh, very widely used inside Twitter. And uh, in fact, there's really not a clear line between logistic regression and deep learning because uh, we can actually think of logistic regression as a one-layer neural network with a single output. So, um, Sure, but the, often folks find the, the overhead of deep learning frameworks relative to the tools that they might use for traditional ML to be pretty heavyweight. Yes. So, for example, TensorFlow um, itself, the estimator API is the main API TensorFlow recommends for productionization in TensorFlow 1. And that API, uh, we acknowledge that it's very clunky, and many of our users don't really like it. They think it's too heavyweight. That's exactly what we provide in our DeepBird abstraction. We're trying to hide the complexity whenever possible and pre prescribe good defaults. So I'd like, I, I usually use a camera analogy. Think of TensorFlow as a very powerful like DSLR camera. Um, many users actually prefer like a mobile phone, one button point and shoot camera. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to wrap TensorFlow inside our layer of abstraction we try to encapsulate all the uh, knobs and buttons on the digital SLR camera, and we expose a single button point and shoot solution. So this is a double-edged sword, right? Um, it's, uh, most users like it, especially the production ML engineers. They really like solutions where they type a single command, it trains a machine learning model for them. But some of the more advanced users and deep learning researchers actually don't necessarily like the point and shoot solution. It's just like how a professional photographer might feel like it's an insult if you give him a point-shoot camera, right? So I would say, um, to answer your question, we added this abstraction layer to hide complexity of deep learning frameworks, such that if you want to do logistic regression using our ML platform, it's very simple. 
and uh, we aim for like uh, simple solutions where you type a command, we can launch training and save models on HDFS, and you type another command, we launch hundreds of prediction servers serving the model saved on HDFS. Um, but we do need to think about how to cater to the more powerful users as well. To what degree does DeepBird replicate a lot of the work that has been done uh, with Keras as a front end to TensorFlow? It, it seems like there are similar goals in terms of increasing usability, although Keras is certainly not a one-button type of solution. Correct. So um, I would say um, there de- there's definitely some overlap. Um, essentially, TensorFlow 1.0 uh, made this... Uh, basically, in TensorFlow 1.0, there are these two ways of practicing ML estimators and Keras. Uh, estimator was more targeting production use, scaling to large data set, while Keras was targeting ease of use. So DeepBird is basically building on top of estimator and hoping to improve ease of use. Upcoming in TensorFlow 2.0, TensorFlow is consolidating Estimator and Keras into a single Keras API. So users no longer need to choose between uh, scalability and usability. Um, We also envision that going forward, uh, once TensorFlow 2.0 is released, DeepBird will also uh, most likely adopt the Keras-based API. Uh, so that is the training element. Do you also, does DeepBird also offer features focused on experiment management, tracking model parameters, hyperparameter tuning, kind of that whole space? Uh, yes, we do. Um, so uh, before our ML platform, most of our customers tracked these in uh, spreadsheets, and we noticed that. So we <laughs> built a repository where our deeper training jobs can automatically push the hyperparameters used and the experiment name and the resulting metrics like uh, PRAOC, accuracy, etc. into this model repository. And then you can query the repository for the experiments you have run and exam um, their hyperparameters and metrics. Mm-hmm. And do you support... Um visualization with uh, TensorBoard, or do you have your own solution or an alternate solution for uh, visualization? We mostly visualize using TensorBoard. Um, So when you type the, uh, when you launch a DeepBird training job in our internal private cloud, we automatically start TensorBoard to watch the training process and render loss and other metrics. Um, also, this model repository we just talked about, uh, once you query for experiment that finished, there's actually a button right in the UI that says launch TensorBoard. If you click on that bot- button, it launches TensorBoard on a um, instance in our internal private cloud, and it points the TensorBoard to that experiment that actually finished running and shows um, how the loss came down and uh, how the resulting metrics look like. Uh, is the platform also opinionated in terms of whether users use a notebook experience or uh, traditional code files or IDs? Um, we're not opinionated on how the user develop uh, how the user develop code, but we do offer a notebook solution that's uh, integrated with our internal um, clusters 
there's this, we offer this thing called PyCX, where you, our users can type a single command and it launches a notebook instance and it tunnels the, to the instance and gives back, gives back a URL that the user can use. It's a, it's a semi-hosted notebook solution. Basically, our users can type a single command and we launch a, a notebook server on our internal cloud and the user can use the notebook uh, and it contains most of the dependencies um, our users would need. But we don't force our users to use notebooks okay. for development. Yeah. And are you, are you doing anything um, to try to streamline the process of going from notebook to production, like some kind of automated uh, code pulls or um, extracting code extraction from the notebooks, that kind of thing? I've seen that from time to time. Yeah, not yet. This is definitely an area that's uh, worth considering. I've seen in the industry that there's paper mill that allows uh, people to execute notebooks as a parameterized script. And there's also uh, Git plugins that allows people to create very nice looking diffs of notebooks. Those are not yet explored in by Cortex, but it's a upcoming area that we um, have that we plan to look into. Also, uh, hyperparameter optimization. Did you mention anything in that regard? Are you doing that? Uh, are you providing a solution to automate that? Yes, definitely. So this touches on the machine learning workflow component that I talked about. I briefly mentioned earlier. The pipeline so, orchestration piece. Yes, exactly. Okay. One thing we learned about machine learning is it's a very tedious process, and when we don't <laughs> automate. Um, our users don't necessarily uh, do things in uh, exhaustive or um, uh, they, they don't, for example... If you don't help them too much, they'll stay on their laptops and do it the way they used to. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and hyperparameter search is one of them. We noticed that uh, it often requires very repetitive and tedious um, repetitions of experiments. So our machine learning workflow solution allows our users to perform randomized search and grid search by launching an, a large array of experiment on our internal cloud and automatically recording hyperparameters and the results. And they can essentially just pick the best um, solution. We also have a solution based on Bayesian optimization where uh, we have a service um, called WetLab. Which this is from the company we acquired. We give it the set of hyperparameters um, that we just tested and the results and the service tell us back what's the next set of hyperparameters to test. It automatically takes into account exploration and exploitation and recommends sets of hyperparameters to, to try next. And that that's that so far seems very effective and our ML workflow solution has um, completely automated solution for using WetLab. Essentially, you just need to say, I want to do hyperparameter tuning and configure the hyperparameter tun tuner to be WetLab instead of grid search or randomized search. And uh, the automated solution would take care of the hyperparameter tuning for you. I guess what's the kind of the fundamental currency in this system? Is it uh, code that's checked into a Git repository? Um, you know, some people focus at the code level. I see others uh, are dealing with containers and checking in and checking out containers. What's mm -hmm. the kind of the core artifact uh, for your system? 
For our system, the core artifact, I would say, are TensorFlow graphs, or actually the code that's defining the TensorFlow okay. graphs. Mm-hmm. The TensorFlow graphs um, essentially defines the machine learning model, and uh, as part of it, we also define which features are used. And uh, um, after that, we send this for training and uh, training spits out another artifact called saved bundles. It's a TensorFlow concept. And these saved bundles are stored on HDFS for serving. So I I would say the the core artifacts are both the TensorFlow graph and the trained models. And presumably you're versioning all of these and tracking the versions transparently to the end user or is the end user thinking about uh, development workflow explicitly? Um, the end users do need to think about development workflow and how they version their code. Okay. Essentially, the TensorFlow graph is code, so it's version by Git, but the models um, our end users need to version them themselves. And have you seen within your user base that you've got kind of ML engineers that are very comfortable with that kind of workflow, but data scientists that are less comfortable with that workflow and prefer for it to happen transparently? Um, so we have definitely seen seen that. One of the things <laughs> we learned was that um, there's a wide varieties of machine learning practitioners ranging from machine learning engineers uh, all the way to deep learning researchers and data scientists. And uh, their use cases differ from like production engineering uh, versus like more like exploration and analysis. And they prefer quite different solutions. And what you mentioned is one, right? Data scientists, uh, they tend to prefer, for example, notebook-centric exploration and development. And machine learning engineers prefer to write code and just git uh, and check into git. Um, w- right now, we don't have a very appealing opinionated solution, or we don't prescribe a development workflow across this different type of machine learning practitioners. Um, We start start with uh, catering to production ML engineers. We're in the process of starting to look at how deep learning researchers and data scientists use our platform and how we can make their lives easier. We had jumped over to talking about that workflow or pipeline orchestration layer. Mm -hmm. Is that based on uh, something open source like Airflow or is it proprietary uh, orchestration tool? Uh, It's based on top of uh, Apache Airflow. Are you doing both kind of online and offline uh, workflows with that? Are you like doing offline scoring and and or batch scoring using the... Uh, the workflow tool as well, or is it primarily for the experimentation and uh, kind of model development loop? Um, It's um, primarily for offline training. Um, uh, For Twitter, the online part is actually real-time, right? So um, we have prediction servers for that. Machine learning workflow is for training the models. 
Um, I didn't fully understand what uh, you meant by batch scoring. Like uh, our predictions are like this, like a user comes to twitter.com. For example, we need to present advertisement. We immediately need to respond. So this request hits our prediction servers and we generate scores in a real-time manner. That's not using machine learning workflows. I think we thoroughly explored the first thing on your list of like seven things and we're 40 minutes in. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yep. Uh, we may need to, uh, to, to be continued this. Um, I am very curious about the meta team that you mentioned, and maybe we can spend a few minutes talking about uh, what you're doing there uh, because it is an issue, uh, the, the issues around bias and accountability are, and fairness are uh, ones that are, you know, folks are starting to realize they need to pay more attention to. Um, and I'm curious how you've uh, staffed up a team, what the charter of that team is, what the, the team's practices are, and, and how they're tackling this issue. Sure. So this started from a year ago. Um, our CEO, Jack, publicly tweeted that we're committing to increasing the collective health, openness, and civility of public conversations. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, we're using machine learning to make algorithmic decisions to curate the public conversations, right? So one thing we realize is we don't yet fully understand the impact of those uh, algorithmic decisions. And for example, um, these algorithms decide what our users see, right? And what people see might actually change their behavior in response um, to the algorithmic recommendations. And as a result, their behavior shift and their behavior creates training data, which feeds back to the um, algorithms, which feeds back to the training data we use to train our machine learning models. And this creates feedback loops. And it's not yet super clear to us what exactly um, these feedback loops cause. And for example, there's uh, right now there's research about how uh, machine learning in social networks cause like polarization of opinions. Mm -hmm. So we started this team called Meta to study like the um, bias, for example, and fairness and uh, accountability and explainability of our machine learning models. And we're staffing the team by partnering up with UC Berkeley professors. Um, this is uh, for two reasons. For one, uh, this is an interdisciplinary um, effort. It involves not just engineering. There's also uh, social science concerns. There's legal concerns. There's, um, I don't know, there's a lot of like essentially human concerns other than engineering concerns. That's why we want diverse perspective and we're partnering with UC Berkeley professors and researchers. The second thing they bring is they bring a, um, like a, because we're thinking about fairness and uh, bias, right? The third party, which is UC Berkeley, which is not really a part of Twitter, they bring a, um, I think they bring objectivity. Opinions. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's why we staffed the team to be um, a partnership between Twitter engineers and uh, UC Berkeley professors and researchers. We want to make sure that we're not, we're getting perspectives not just from engineers 
engineers because this is not just an engineering problem; it's also a social、right. problem. And when you, when I think about a, a, a role like this, or a, a team, or a charter like this, and what we want from them in today's environment, it strikes me that a big part of this, by necessity, is kind of research and exploration and building understanding of these issues and how they play out in a network like Twitter's. But you also want that to have engineering impact, and、uh, you want to create a place where data scientists that are working on a problem, or machine learning engineers that are working on a problem, can take advantage of, you know, some degree of expertise in a very kind of practical, tangible today kind of way. How do you manage that、uh, that dichotomy with this team? Um, yes. So this team is、uh, right now the main、um, objective is to provide, for example, tooling and uh, resource uh, to increase、um, explainability and、uh, transparency of our machine learning models.、Um, for now, we need to first understand what's going on, right, before we actually propose、um, what to change. So. I think for now there really isn't a dichotomy yet between engineering impact and、uh, research. Essentially, we're trying to measure for the first step, and we are providing tools for different teams to be able to measure.、Uh, well, E, this has been a, a great conversation. There's still so much more for us to. Chat about, but、uh, I think this was a, a very, very interesting exploration of、uh, Deep Bird and how you're approaching training. And I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us about it. Happy to continue the conversation next time if we、uh, we get a chance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening, and catch you next time.